Our guest minister this morning is Dr. Erwin Entz, and I really want to encourage you to check out his bio on the website or on the app. Um, he began his career as an engineer and then sensed the call of God into pastoral ministry, planted a church, and then has been involved in uh, training and mentoring young pastors. And uh, so we're really happy to have him here. He's now been appointed the coordinator of Mission to North America, our denominational uh, stateside missions organization. But the thing that you really need to know about Irwin, if you follow him on Facebook, what he's really excited about. He's excited that we're in the same fraternity. He's got two granddaughters, and he is excited about those grandkids and being in that, uh, in that club. So, Irwin, please come open the word for us. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you, brother. He also loves kettlebells. And coffee. Yeah, kettlebells and coffee. This yeah, is true. and I don't do either. Though. No, I do <laughs> As my uh, pastor friend in D.C., where I live, Russ Whitfield says when I encourage him to do some kettlebell training, he said, "I do, I do kettle corn, kettle chips, you know." <laughs> well, good morning, Oak Mountain. It's a joy to be with you this morning. I want to speak to you on the subject, as you see on the screen, an unshakable kingdom from the 12th chapter of the letter to the Hebrews in verses 18 through 29, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. And would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Hebrews 12. 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. 
This is God's word. Would you pray with me? We thank you, Lord, again and again for your word that's not dead but alive and active and sharp that pierces to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And we are all standing in this place, Lord, naked and exposed to your eyes, the one to whom we must all give account. And we praise you for this good news because that means you know precisely what we are in need of this morning. And so would you take my efforts in your word as weak and unworthy as they may be and use them to bless your people. Would you meet us where we are, Lord, and give us what we need? Hope, faith, peace, courage, encouragement, correction, whatever it may be, that we would be people who live more and more for the glory and praise of Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen, amen and amen. You may take your seats. Well, sugar, uh, sugar substitutes have been on the market for a long time. Back when I was a kid in the 70s, the only sugar substitute available on the market was sweet and low, the pink stuff. You know, uh, but the issue was, you know, it had this label on it and it has saccharin in it. And saccharin has been found, it said, to, found, to cause cancer in laboratory animals. So aside from the fact that it wasn't that great, uh, it had an aftertaste, it had this warning. But, you know, they've improved over the years on the sugar substitutes. After Sweet and Low came, came Equal, I think it's in the blue packet, and then, uh, then after Equal came Splenda, it's in the, the yellow packet, and then uh, after Splenda on the market comes my sugar substitute of choice for my coffee, which is Stevia mixed with monk fruit, and it comes in a green packet. Now, here's what happens to people like me who use this stuff for years and years on end in, in drinks like my coffee, you actually begin to lose your taste for, for sugar because the substitute starts to taste like the real thing to you. I've been using sugar substitute in my coffee for so long that if I have sugar in my coffee these days, it tastes strange to me. It doesn't taste right. So the substitute has completely overtaken the real substance. And here's the deal. When we see this passage in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 12, what we see is the ongoing concern of a pastor for his congregation that they reject the substitute shadow of old covenant religion and completely embrace their better new covenant reality. They had been living so long in the substitute shadow that when the real substance came, it was hard for them to let go of the substitute. The substitute and the shadow, he wants them to know, are not better than the substance and the reality. And no matter how much I like stevia and monk fruit, it's not better than sugar. 
I can fool myself as much as I want, but it doesn't change that fact and the life situation of these people to whom this letter is addressed are being tempted to go back under old covenant rules and, rela- and regulations, uh, the re- regulations for, for animal sacrifices and, and for worship that their people had practiced for over a thousand years. Now, in Jesus Christ, the reality has come and the shadow and the substitute are are no longer valid. Their pastor had said to them in chapter 8 and verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he said, God makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and, uh, and growing old is ready to vanish away. God had made the old one obsolete, the pastor says, and what's being old was, was obsolete and and, and, and growing old is ready to vanish away. You've tasted, he wants them to know, the reality you need to throw out your old substitutes. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. The, the sugar they're supposed to be enjoying doesn't always taste so sweet. In other words, what they're finding out is that following Jesus is costly. They are actually uh, in the furnace and in the context of this letter, catching hell for, for following Jesus, catching hell for their life of faith. And, and there is this pattern that, that the pastor has in the letter to the Hebrews that, uh, that, that follows in this word of exhortation. Every time he talks to them throughout the letter about how much better it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ, how much better it is to be a part of this new covenant community, he follows it up with a warning about how much worse it is if, if you reject Jesus. And that same pattern is right here in this passage. He gives us this picture, these pictures of the heavenly reality throughout the letter. And and verses 18 to 24 of our passage can be described as the the climax of, of the heavenly picture that he's been painting for them. He tells them that life in God's kingdom is lived in God's presence And he says, you've not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. He says they couldn't endure the order that was given to them. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. He says, so terrifying was the sight that even Moses said, I tremble with fear. He says, but you've come to Mount Zion. You have come in Christ, he says to them, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and you've come to to God, the judge of all, and, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. 
So he's telling them, he's letting them know that even though they're in the furnace, even though they are, they, are, they, are, they are facing the fire in their following of Jesus, he says your lives together in Christ are lives of no fear and festive joy. Your lives are lives of no fear and festive joy. You haven't come You haven't come to Mount Sinai. You've come to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is better than Mount Sinai, and you've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And after he paints this last picture of the glorious heavenly reality comes his last warning in the letter. Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem is far better than Mount Sinai where the law was given. And so if the people who were gathered at Mount Sinai when the law was given didn't escape condemnation and judgment when they rejected God's divine message back then, he's saying, what do you think it'll be like if we reject the better word? So on this heels of no fear and And festive joy are these three things. The no fear and festive joy in God's kingdom also means no faking it. It means being fixed on the future. And it means that God's favor calls us to an attitude of gratitude. Life of festive joy and no fear means No, faking it, being fixed on the future and God's favor calling us to an attitude of gratitude. There's no faking it. He lets them know in verse number 25, he says, See to it that you don't refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape him when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns them from heaven. The one who warned on earth is... Moses at Mount Sinai, the one who warns from heaven, is Jesus who's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I love what he's doing. I think that the Hebrews would have picked up on what the pastor is doing. In the last verse of our text, verse number 29, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24, which says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 20 to 24, in that passage, Moses is speaking to the Israelites who are about to cross over the Jordan River and enter to take possession of the land that God had promised to give them. And Moses recounts for them the reality that the Lord had delivered them out of what he says, the furnace of Egypt, and was going to give them possession of this good land. God had promised to dwell with his people in that place. And then Moses says in verse 23 of Deuteronomy 4, take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make a carved image the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. And now the pastor has that same pattern of uh, of presenting the Lord's glorious deliverance for them. Then he says, you also better see to it or rather take care that you don't refuse him who is speaking. Take care. God is not a joke. There's no faking it because you can't fool God. 
You better not refuse the one who is speaking. Well, what does it look like to reject or refuse the one who is speaking? It's, it can be very subtle. That's why I use the, the, the word fake here. All of the warnings in Hebrews are particularly directed towards having an outward appearance of faith, but an inward rejection of Jesus Christ. In other words, to confess with your mouth and not believe in your heart. Let me say this. We... No, We've already experienced it in our worship, in the words that we've sung, in the prayers that we've prayed this morning. No, no acts of liturgical service or practices make us right with God. It's not my self-sacrifice. It's not my charity. It's not my Bible reading or giving to those who are less advantaged. It's not my generosity. It's not my decision to, to, to live a moral or upstanding life. It's not my decision to be more modest in the way I talk or in the way I dress. It's not my friendliness, uh, my kindness, or any other law that I can come up with that makes me right or good with God. I am right with God by one way and one way alone, only by the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ covering my sins, washing them all away. I come by the blood. Or as the pastor says right here in verse 24, we've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The question is always, What's the condition of our hearts? It's not to say that we don't care about generosity or self-sacrifice or Bible reading or giving to, to those in need or, 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 or be, being moral and upstanding. But what's the condition of our hearts? Are we striving to do those things as a way of, sh of, of showing, uh, 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 seeking God's uh, approval and, and pleasure? Or have we experienced the heart-changing work of the Spirit of God that moves us into those kinds of things out of a sense of love for God and neighbor? The Bible is always, always, always telling us, calling us to examine our hearts, to look within and see what is going on. Am I trying to gain God's approval or do I already know the rich and robust love of God in Christ and what he has done for me? Sisters and brothers, are we finding our hearts shaped more and more by the power of the Spirit of God dwelling within us that then produces that fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness, humility, self-control. It's the question. Spirit moving us to more and more Obedience to Christ and his kingdom. In other, words, in other words, are we living now, right now, with our eyes firmly fixed on the future? Israel and at Mount Sinai, uh, this text says, gave lip service in response to God's word. 
God's voice was so powerful at Sinai, our passage says that they begged that no further messages be spoken to them. And the same verb that is translated in verse 9 of our passage as beg, or verse 19 rather, as beg is translated, it's the same verb that's translated in verse 25 as refuse. They beg that no further messages be spoken to him. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And the use of this word in verse 19 to indicate the people's urgent request that God not speak to them directly and his his reuse of it in verse 25, and what it does to, war- to warn them against re- rejecting God's message, what it does is it highlights, it highlights the fact that Israel's urgent uh, requests eventually morphed into outright rejection of the Lord. Why did they reject the Lord? Because they rejected the Lord because the dominant factor in their, their life and how they assessed their life and how they assessed their God was their current condition. The way in which they assessed their lives and their God was their current condition. How quickly did their rejoicing over being delivered from Egypt turn into grumbling and complaining? There's a food problem, and they say, Moses, you brought us out here to die. They get to the promised land, and Moses sends spies to spy out the land, and they came back after 40 days and said, we were like grasshoppers compared to the people of the land. Then they said it would have been better for us to to die in Egypt than in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land so we can die by the sword? Let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The message the pastor is giving to his congregation is, do not let that kind of rebellion define y'all. Because life in God's kingdom is dominated by a heavenly reality. He says, coming to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, this heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, the assembly of the firstborn Enrolled in heaven to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In other words, he says, this, this means what, you, what we have is a faith that is firmly fixed on the future. It doesn't mean that we live in denial of the problems and issues that are going on in life right now. It means that we understand that those things are temporary. <laughs> That those things are things that will be removed and and done away with. Look at what he says in verses 26 and 27. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that are created in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What he does here is borrow words from the prophet Haggai in Haggai chapter 2 and verse 6, where the prophet says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, In a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. He's saying, saying, y'all got to get your minds around what's real. 
When God said yet once more, he was making it clear that he's going to shake up this whole deal. He's going to shake up the entire creation. You have to live now with your faith firmly fixed on this future hope because God is not content to let his creation continue forever dominated by sin and depravity and injustice and death and oppression When God created the world, he pronounced a benediction over it. He pronounced a a blessing over it. He looked at all that he had made and proclaimed that it was very good. So why, why do we as followers of Christ press into a broken world with the priorities of his kingdom? Why do we seek to be and commit to strive and be on mission representing the king and the ways of his kingdom in the present time? Why do we seek to to bring his word to bear, to bring healing and hope in a messed up world? Is it because we think that it's going to be smooth and easy? Is it because we think that we're not going to face resistance and conflict? You heard Pastor Tom in his quote from Revelation chapter 12, how the dragon resists and is on attack of those who are trying to be obedient to the Lord and his ways. You heard Pastor Alton Hardy talk about urban hope and and the times he wanted to give up and God showing up every time he says, I can't do it anymore. There's resistance to the priorities of Christ and his kingdom. So why do we press? It's because our eyes are firmly fixed on the future and we know that our king is not content to let his creation continue forever dominated by injustice and sin and depravity. We know that as the prophet Habakkuk says in chapter 2 of his prophecy that there's a day coming that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord the way the waters cover the seas. That day is coming. And so the pastor reminds us that he reminds us that the world as it is is not the final chapter. The world as it is is not the final chapter. There's going to be a final doing away with all of the mess, a shaking up, the pastor describes it. One commentator on this passage says this, the final shaking of both heaven and earth is necessary for the purging and eradication from the universe of all that is hostile to God and his will. There will be a final eradication from this world and the entire creation of all that's hostile to God and his will. Some things are going to be shaken and some things are going to remain. The things that are hostile to God and his will will be shaken and done away with. The things that are aligned with the priorities of Christ and his kingdom will remain. This 
These things that remained are those things that are connected to the redemption that Jesus Christ brings. Like, why is, why is, why is, why is Urban Hope talking about bringing a grocery store to Fairfield? Why is he talking about a grocery store and a coffee shop? It's because, it's because the priorities of the kingdom are for life and flourishing that people would be provided for and know that, that their father is a good, good provider. And he works through his people toward that end. You see, it's only by God's favor that we can have that perspective. It's only by God's favor, it's only by receiving God's unmerited favor, his grace, that you and I can live now with that future promise. Here's another pattern that takes place in this letter to the Hebrews. Every time their pastor issues a warning, every time he issues a warning, he doesn't leave them down in the dumps feeling miserable. He always ends the warning with an encouraging word. He, he believes that their faith in Jesus Christ is genuine, so he believes that they're going to respond to God's word. He believes that they're not going to turn away from God, but that they're going to be turning away from their sin. So he says, what we are called to do is have an attitude of gratitude because God's favor enables us to, to live a life of worship in his presence. The things that, that, that cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, he says in verses 28 and 29, therefore, let us be grateful. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This is an exhortation to hold on to the grace of God because we're dependent on it. Here's the idea, Christians, Christians are those who by grace are receiving an unshakable kingdom. He's saying, so let's hold on to that grace because we're dependent on it. Having a faith that is fixed on the assurance of God's future promise makes a difference right now because people who have that faith are right now the recipients of an unshakable kingdom. One of my favorite definitions for the kingdom of God and what it means comes from an old Dutch Reformed theologian named Gerhardus Voss. He was studying the Gospels and, and the fact that Jesus talks so much about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, what does Jesus mean when he talks about the kingdom? What is this kingdom? And he wrote this. He says, he says for Jesus... The kingdom exists there, not merely where God is supreme, because that's always and everywhere true. 
But the kingdom exists where God carries through his supremacy against the forces that oppose it and brings people to the willing recognition of the same. In other words, where the supernatural work of God is present and, 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 and overcomes the forces that are opposing him and his priorities and brings people like you and me to the willing recognition of it. He said, that's where you see the kingdom present today. That is the kingdom that we are receiving the supernatural work of God carrying through his supremacy against the forces that oppose it and bring people to recognize it. I keep coming back to that video. This was obviously wasn't in my notes, but that video, like, do you understand that even a grocery store and a coffee shop can have supernatural impact. And notice this. Notice this. He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You know, very often we as Christians we talk about we're going to doing kingdom building work. We're building the kingdom. We ain't building nothing. We are recipients. It's a passive thing. We've received the kingdom. God is pleased through our work to do the building by the power of his spirit. But we're not the builders. Jesus is the builder. It's his kingdom. And we get to be those who, that's why we have no fear and festive joy because we're receivers. And the advancement and building of his kingdom is actually not dependent on us. When Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples right before he predicts that Peter will deny him uh, three times, in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 through 30, he says this to his disciples. He says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And he says, I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, my father assigned to me a kingdom, Jesus says to his disciples, and I assign to you a kingdom. Why? So you can sit at my table in my kingdom so that you can sit at my table in my kingdom and eat and drink. Jesus is using imagery in that passage from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, where Daniel says, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed." This is the kingdom we've received. 
This is the kingdom we've received, the one that is everlasting, the one in which all nations and peoples and languages will serve the king and recognize that his dominion is an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that will never, ever, ever pass away. May God be pleased. May God be pleased to let us come along for the ride. May God be pleased to let us come along for the ride and join him as he does the kingdom building work so that more and more people will, by the supernatural working of the Spirit of God, be able to say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, and come into this life of no fear and festive joy to the glory of his name. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, yes, that is our prayer, that you would bless us in this place, to know with every fiber of our being that you are Lord and King. And Lord, to, to be pleased, to have joy in being a part of your kingdom and being used by you for the furtherance of your kingdom. Make it so, Lord, that the glory and fame of Jesus Christ would spread more and more and more and that we might take delight in it. Amen, amen, and amen. Would you stand with me and receive the Lord's benediction? And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs glory now and forevermore. Amen.